We're reading this morning from Nehemiah chapter 8, which if you've got a church Bible, you can find on page 491. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people came together as one in the square before the water gates. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra, the teacher of the law, stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Beside him on his right stood Matthias and his friends. Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and teacher of the law, and the Levites, who were instructing the people, said to them all, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people have been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks, and, said, and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for this is a holy day. Do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy, because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. On the second day of the month, the heads of all the families, along with the priests and the Levites, gathered round Ezra, the teacher of the law, to give attention to the words of the law. They found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded through Moses, that the Israelites were to live in temporary shelters during the festival of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim this word and spread it throughout the towns in Jerusalem. Go out into the hill country and bring back branches from olive and wild olive trees, and from myrtles, palms, and other leafy trees, to make temporary shelters, as it is written. So the people went out and brought back branches, and built themselves temporary shelters on their own roofs, in their courtyards, in the courts of the house of God, and in the square by the water gate, and the one by the gate of Ephraim. The whole company that had returned from the exile built temporary shelters and lived in them. From the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until that day, the Israelites had not celebrated it like this, and their joy was very great. Day after day, from the first day to the last, Ezra read from the book of the law of God. They celebrated the festival for seven days, and on the eighth day, in accordance with the regulation, there was an assembly. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Good morning. Nice to see you. Let's pray that God would speak to us from his word. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the scriptures. And thank you, Lord, that you have the same power today as you had in Nehemiah's day 
We pray as we study this chapter together that you would remind us of what you're able to do and you would inspire us by your Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I have a question for us. It's imagining that we're on a long car journey and we're trying to kill time. And the kind of quiz question that would stretch your imagination, if you could pick, say, eight or ten events that are recorded in the scriptures, which you could be at, what would you put in your list of eight or ten? And for me, this passage of scripture we've just had read, Nehemiah chapter 8, that would be up there. That would be up there for reasons that we shall see. And I want us to remember as we look at this chapter that God doesn't change. The scriptures tell us, I, the Lord, do not change. He's as powerful today as he's ever been. His plans have not changed. His nature, his character have not changed. So we've been journeying through this book of Nehemiah. And up to this point, I think it would be fair to say that the main focus on the book has been on Nehemiah's task of rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. And we're told that, amazingly, after 52 days, that task was accomplished. But, but for those who have eyes to see it, the highlight of this book is not the walls going up. The highlight of this book is God coming down. God visiting his people. And what we have recorded for us in Nehemiah chapter 8 is nothing less than a full-blown revival. Jim Packer writes about this, moments of this kind when minds and hearts are inundated and overwhelmed by the reality of God in his holiness and grace belong to the history that we call revival. And what happened in Nehemiah chapter 8 in Jerusalem in the seventh month of 44 BC was just such a work. It was revival. And what we're going to do this morning is have some fun as we look back at, so what are the hallmarks? What are the characteristics of when revival comes, when God pours out his spirit? And I I do want us to be clear from the word go that this is what happens with revival. It's not something you and I can crank up from the ground up. It's not something you and I can provoke by getting out of bed earlier and praying for an extra half hour or pulling our socks up. This literally is a sovereign work of grace where God, for whatsoever reason, decides to reach out and, and like bridge the gap between heaven and earth. And it's like you see it works of what have we called extraordinary sovereign power. And if you get caught up in a revival, it's a bit like being caught up in some measure, in a, in a rainstorm. You know, you can't avoid it. It, it, it lands on you and, and you become part of what's going on. You are influenced and impacted by it. It, it really is sovereign. I think a, a good um, illustration of how sovereign it is, are those moments in scripture, which happens more than once, say, where the king says to Daniel, the prophet in the book of Daniel, hey, Daniel, I had a dream last night. And you're going to tell me what that dream was, and you're going to give me the interpretation. And at that point, there's no blagging it. You know, either God helps you or you're lost, because, you know, you guys can't tell me, thankfully, about the dream I had or didn't have last night. 
unless God tells you. It takes revelation. And the same happened, didn't it, to Joseph and Pharaoh. Pharaoh said, Joseph, tell me about the dream I had. Well, unless God speaks, you can't do it. And same with revival. Unless God brings it, it can't happen. But it's good to know what can happen, as we're going to look now, because that can, A, increase our faith, and it can help us to live in the hope that God will do it again. And the very first thing that I notice in Nehemiah chapter 8 is the Lord gathers a crowd. The Lord himself brings together the people. It's a sovereign meeting, verse 1. Yes, we do know that Nehemiah was a supreme organizer. He was a good administrator. He was a motivator. But none of that could have achieved what happens in verse 1. The people come in all their thousands, all the people assembled as one in the square before the water gate. And remarkably, there are examples of this happening in history too. I'm going to draw more than once on an autobiography written by a man called William Haslam, who began his life as a clergyman in, in an obscure part of Cornwall. And his autobiography called From Death to Life is actually riveting. And he is writing about 1850. Let me read you a little bit about what he says about this phenomenon. Sometimes, for no accountable reason, we saw the church thronged with a multitude of people from various parts, having no connection with one another, all equally surprised to see each other, and the regular congregation more surprised still to see the unexpected rush of strangers. After a time or two, we began to know the cause and understood that the coming together of the people was by the spirit of the Lord. And so we prepared accordingly, expecting a revival to follow. Some of you might have heard the story of Duncan Campbell, who led what became known as a revival in the Hebrides. It, it went from 1949 to 1953 and became known as either the Hebrides Revival or the Lewis Awakening. And if you actually Google the name Duncan Campbell Hebrides Revival, you can listen to a talk that he gives of his experience. And, and part of his story is just this. He, he arrives on the Isle of, of Lewis or Harris, and um, I can't remember which, and he's led by some locals to preach in the church. And when he gets to the church, there's just a handful of people there. And he goes into the pulpit and he preaches, and not much happens. And he walks to the back of the church, and he stands by the door, and he, he records that he sees a local man fall on his knees and pray, and he hears him praying. And what he hears him praying is, Lord, you've promised revival. You've promised you'd bring revival. Where's the revival? You can't let us down. And the man goes on praying and praying and praying like this. And Duncan Campbell says in his spirit he feels very humbled by the man's prayers. And it's now quite late and he goes out the back of the church. And then he says, quite unaccountably, we saw people coming from every single direction walking towards the church. So many people and they just piled in until there's absolutely no room to put another seat. And so they put a couple of seats behind the pulpit where he's going to be preaching. And he preaches his sermon with a couple of nuns, apparently sitting on a chair with him in the pulpit as he preaches. 
And then the spirit of God comes on people and people are crying out for God's mercy. And that begins a period of Holy Spirit revival. But God brought the crowd together. What an amazing thing to experience. And not only that, and we see this, all this in Nehemiah chapter 8, God gives a hunger to those people who he brought together for his word. They ask for someone to explain the words of scripture to them. And let's press pause at this point and just remember something else. It's easy to dismiss this. This figure of Ezra suddenly pops up in Nehemiah. Now, where did Ezra come from? Well, it's intriguing because in the book of Ezra, we can read this, Ezra chapter 7. He, that is Ezra, had begun his journey from Babylon on the first day of the first month, and he arrived in Jerusalem on the first day of the fifth month, for the gracious hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the Lord, the law of the Lord, and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. And if we just get a perspective on this, you can see two incredible things happening. Under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, God is coordinating two amazing things. Number one, this character Ezra sets off a few months in advance to arrive in Jerusalem to be there when Nehemiah has completed his work. So he's on hand. It's what you can call a divine appointment. God has arranged this to happen. But I think every bit as extraordinary is this fellow Ezra has invested his life day in, day out. He devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. And all those years of investment pay off. Because when the children of Israel cry out asking for understanding and a knowledge of God, there is one guy who can interpret the scriptures to them so who in our day are people going to turn to when God moves their hearts and they want to find themselves in God's company and the answer is you and me the answer is if we will immerse ourselves in scripture we'll be able to help them pinpoint them towards the love of God a nation without scriptures is like a nation that's lost its way to God. It would be like arriving in a country without a map and finding all the signposts to every place are pointing in the wrong direction. That's what a nation would be like without the scriptures. And the people of Israel are in that kind of a bind, frankly. They, they speak Aramaic, not Hebrew. They have no instruction since the exile. And now, under the providence of God, they come back into a place, but they're completely lost. They need help and that is where Ezra can step in now it'd be very easy to go on a quick kind of divergence uh, diversion and highlight quite how ignorant our country is about the scriptures well it is it, it just is every every single survey that's done just indicates that people have no knowledge of scripture at all 36% of people in a fairly recent survey had no idea that the story of a Good Samaritan came from the scriptures. 
59% had no idea about David and Goliath or Jonah and the whale and didn't know they came from the Bible. One in 10 thought that stories of Icarus and King Midas are in the Bible. And the thing about these things is not just kind of name and shame it. It's just that you're lost without this knowledge. There is no heritage to draw upon. And so people like Ezra, who have got the knowledge, become more and more and more invaluable. I actually hear an amazing number of stories of people who have become followers of Christ. Their parents have no knowledge of God at all, but their grandparents do. And they're able to have a conversation with their grandparents, who evidently were better instructed, better taught, and better followers of Christ. So it's encouraging to find amongst us, before we go down the plug hole with depression, it's encouraging to find that there are people who are studying the scriptures. There are people who would be able to communicate to others. But I'm just pointing out, in times of Holy Spirit revival, people who know the scriptures become even more valuable, and it's worth the investment of your time and mine. Which leads us to the third thing. The Holy Spirit gave them understanding. Understanding is a key word in this chapter. It comes again and again and again, verses 2, 3, 7, 8, 12. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that people could understand what was being said. And it's humbling and it's very heartening to know that when it comes to understanding the things of God, revelation has more relevance than intelligence. People don't get to grips with the word of God because they're super bright. And they don't get excluded from the word of God because they have no education or low IQ. It's all to do with God's revelation. God opening our eyes. God opening our hearts. In Isaiah we read, this is the one I esteem. He who's humble and contrite and trembles at my word. And evidently the people who came together at the Watergate revival... They were longing to be instructed. You can tell their attitude. It's, it's set out before us. I, I kind of imagine that they're there in the Watergate in a great crowd. And like a football crowd, they're shouting, Ezra, Ezra, Ezra. You know, bring him out. He's the guy who's got the knowledge for us. And we read that when he picked up the word of God, they lifted up their hands. And then they knelt to the ground. They, they were just ready to receive. They were eating out of... Ezra's hand, but God's hand, weren't they? Such was the spiritual hunger. And two things happen, at least two. The striking thing is they were cut to the quick. The technical word for what was going on was they were convicted of sin. But that doesn't mean much to many these days. So to try and unpack that word, what they became aware of was a massive gap between the way they were doing life and the way God wanted them to do life. And it wasn't that um, they felt this and did nothing. And it wasn't that they felt this and fell to the ground feeling remorseful. It, it was that God gripped them and showed them there's a better way to live than this. And they wanted to walk in that way. It's a very long time ago since I last saw a hall of mirrors. But if you've ever been in a hall of mirrors, and I have been in the dim and distant past, you know that you stare at these mirrors and they, 
they deliberately distort what you look like. And you look at one and it makes you incredibly tall and thin. You look at another, it makes you unbelievably short and fat. And by the time you finish looking at 12 mirrors, you've just not got a bearing on what you really look like. And that's a bit like how we do life. You know, you look at how other people are doing life and you see your reflection in them, etc., etc. but it's all totally distorted and you don't know what a pure life would look like. You don't know what a godly life would look like until the Holy Spirit shows you. And when revival comes, the Holy Spirit does show you. Or to use another illustration, quite a few years ago, someone played a trick on me, uh, someone that I knew well and trusted, and they gave me a kind of thing that looked like a red Smarty. And they said, here, Rupert, chew on this. So I thought, well, why not? And so I chewed on this thing. And they said, now, get, now go to the bathroom and rinse out your mouth and come back. I did that. And then they held a mirror in front of me and they said, grin into the mirror and look. And what they'd just done was they'd given me something called a disclosing tablet. And you can buy these things at Boots. And when you chewed and rinsed your mouth out, you're left with great amounts of red on your teeth, showing you all the gunge and gunk that you haven't flossed out over the previous 20 years or whatever. It's a gloriously revolting illustration. But when the Holy Spirit gets hold of us, that kind of thing happens. He begins to show you the parts of your life that God doesn't find so great, and you begin to care about it too. William Hasson again. Sometimes I've known the children of the school commence crying for no ostensible reason when a few words about the love of God in giving his son or the love of Christ in laying down his life would prove enough to kindle a flame and they begin to cry aloud for mercy. I've seen a whole school of more than 100 children like this at the same time. An awakening of such a character was generally a token of the beginning of a work of God which would last in power for four or five weeks, if not more, and then the quiet, ordinary work would go on as before. And Duncan Campbell, talking about his experience in the Hebrides, says very, very similar things. He, he says that people out in, in their boats sailing would suddenly be gripped by a fear of the holiness of the Lord for no accountable reason, but they would, and they would suddenly start weeping in repentance. Or George Witchfield preaching in the fields outside of Bristol to hundreds of coal miners would write in his diary, his journal, that as they were convicted by the Holy Spirit, they would start to weep and he would see on the faces of the miners where their tears had made the coal dust uh, spread so he would just be able to see the tears and marks on their faces. And it's just sovereign work of the Holy Spirit. And what was happening in the Watergate revival and what happens in genuine revivals ever since it's not the crowd that's impressive, although it is impressive. It's the conviction that God brought to the crowd. We should remember that, actually, in our day, shouldn't we? That It's not the great crowds we should be wowed by. It's when the great crowds are drawn close to God we should be wowed. And then I notice, and this is another hallmark of revival, that there's a strange dynamic at work and it's a dynamic of joy and conviction and celebration going together. Of laughter and tears. Of tears of joy and tears of mourning. Such that Nehemiah has to stand up 
and say to the people, this day is sacred to the Lord. Don't mourn or weep, for all the people have been weeping as they listen to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some of those who have nothing prepared. This day is sacred to the Lord. Don't grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And it is paradoxically a joyous thing when God touches lives and says to us, that way of living needs to change. And now there's a better way of living. There's a way which really is joy bringing and is full of freedom. And it's a startling fact, absolutely startling fact, that every one of us who knows Jesus has a better message than Ezra. We have a new covenant to rejoice in. We, we have a story of God sending his son and dying for us. And this was a lasting work. It wasn't a flash in the pan. Nehemiah 8.18, day after day, from the first day to the last, Ezra read from the book of the law. And they celebrated the feast for seven days. And on the eighth day, there was an assembly. And the last thing to notice from this chapter and to notice about revivals is the proof of a pudding is in the eating. Lives changed. That's why we read right to the end of a chapter because the behavior of those who have been in, in the Watergate Square around the gate, it changed. They started to celebrate a festival. They went out of their way to be observant to God in a way they never had been before. And when a genuine move of the spirit happens, lives change. And I think it's so easy for us, it would be so easy for us to read the newspapers, see all the grungy stuff that's going on habitually all around us and be so depressed. But Whitfield could have done that in his day. Hassan could have done it in his day. Duncan Campbell could have done it in his day. But if you look up and see what God can do, then hope comes to your heart. Let me read you a contemporary account of what went on in the Welsh revival of 1904. During the revival, children held meetings of their own in homes, in barns, in some cases even in pigsties. And the records are full of young children taking part in public meetings. Stocks of Welsh and English Bibles ran out. Prayer meetings were held in coal mines, in trains, in trams, in places of business. The works managers bore testimony of a change of conduct of their employees. The magistrates of several places were presented with white gloves, signifying there were no cases to try. Long-standing debts were paid and stolen goods were returned. The police rejoiced in the revival. One day in Holyhead in Anglesey, the solemnity of court proceedings was broken by songs of praise in Welsh. The police guard outside hurried in but stayed to add his bass to the jury's choir of praise over a sinner repenting. Life in the coal pits was transformed. Not only did workers and managers engage in prayer meetings, but the pits themselves showed silent indicators of a new spirit, with Bible texts scrawled upon the ventilator shafts for all to see. Cursing and profanity was so diminished that several slowdowns were reported in the coal mines. For so many men gave up using foul language, the pit ponies dragging the coal trucks in the mine tunnels didn't understand what was being said to them and stood still confused. It was noted in London that the poor law guardians who administered relief in Swansea 
were commenting upon an unusual happening in Wales. Working folk taking their aged parents home from the workhouse to which they'd been inconsiderately assigned. Wow, what is the Holy Spirit capable of? All of this. And my purpose in drawing our attention to it has been to enable us to pray. You know, Habakkuk prayed in Habakkuk 3, Lord, I've heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds. Remember them in our day and in our time, make them known and in wrath, remember mercy. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that with you, nothing is impossible. And thank you that you're the same yesterday and today and forever. And when we read of these events and when we rehearse of what you've done from time to time in history, of course we want to say to you, Lord, Lord, we stand in awe of your fame. And we remember your deeds and we say to you, Lord, renew them in our day. Renew them in our day. In Jesus' name, amen.